Well, welcome all you wiretappers back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. We have Ron Chepesek here. Uh, Ron has been on the show a few times before. The The last time Ron was on, it was about his book, Bad Henry, which was not really about the mob or uh, any narcotics cartels, but it was about a really bad dude. I had several comments on that show uh, about what a bad guy that was, he was. So anyhow, welcome, Ron. I appreciate you coming back on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate the uh, being here. Okay, so Ron, we talked before, and you are uh, participating. What you were the screenwriter for a series uh, on VIX, VIX channel. Yeah, it's a Mexican streaming service channel. It's, okay, and, it's the biggest Spanish language um, streaming service uh, channel in the world. Oh really? I, see, I don't know. I tried and to look. I it's tried available to look for it. In the United States as well. I get it on my. I get it on my cable. Okay, so yeah, it's, it's I get it on, on my cable. It's on cable. You don't know if it's on like an app. They don't have their own app that you can get. You have to have cable. Yeah, they have their own app. Oh, do they? Okay. Well, I, yeah, I'll they, have to try have to their own app. try to download that app. Anyhow, you did the screenplay for this story of Carlos Later. Carlos Later was uh, he was one of the early huge cocaine cartel members connected to pablo escobar he was i don't know did he have his own organization he 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 handled transport if i remember right uh and got connected yeah, he was, with he george was transportation genius so but he was the transportation genius and he was a member of the medellin cartel okay. which was uh headed by uh pablo escobar and and uh included some other um, Colombian drug traffickers, um, including the Ochoa brothers. So start off with a little bit about his history. Where did he come from? I mean, just a, a poor boy in Colombia that grew up to be a cartel leader in the transportation yeah, he captain. Grew, he, yeah, he uh, yeah, he was born in um, September 7, 1949 in uh, Colombia. Uh, his father um, had emigrated from Germany uh, to Colombia. Mm. Uh, so he was uh, German-Colombian. And uh, his father was uh, Wilhelm, uh, was an interesting character. Uh, he helped build a lot of the highways, the early highways in Colombia, and mm. uh, built some apartment buildings that had elevators, which at the time was not was an unusual occurrence. Um, and um, uh, he was a rabid uh, uh, German. And um, during the war, the, the U.S. kept tabs on him because they thought he might be a German spy for Hitler on that. And um, uh, he married a, a former queen, Helena, and uh, and Carlos was one of um, one of uh, four children, uh, the third one in, in the group on that. And um, uh, he sort of adapted a lot of his father's views uh, on um, on race and uh jews and all that he was a very uh anti-semitic and uh and racist and um uh, he was sort of a a problem child but uh his parents divorced when they were 15 years old and his mother moved to the united states so, uh where he got involved dabbled in marijuana he stole cars and um he uh eventually got caught 
and ended up spending time in Danbury, Connecticut prison there. And that's from what I read, that's where he met this man named George Jung. Yeah. Yeah, he met George Jung. George Jung became his cellmate. Uh, uh, he was uh, really interested in George Jung's past. Uh, he had been a marijuana uh, smuggler. And uh, he told uh, Carlos that uh, he had used uh, planes to, to, um, to fly across the border from Mexico and smuggle in marijuana. And it was very effective. And uh, Carlos, being a very smart guy, uh, thought that, that uh, transportation could be used to smuggle cocaine into the United States. Um, he was a visionary, and he saw the potential for cocaine. Uh, this was in the mid-'70s, where cocaine was just starting to become big mm -hmm. in the United States. And uh, uh, he was in prison with a lot of uh, uh, drug people, and uh, he, he picked your brains. Uh, he kept notebooks, all that sort of stuff. He was like he went to school uh, to study drug trafficking. And uh, he collected all this information. And, and uh, uh, he made a, a deal with uh, George Jung that when he got out of, out of prison, uh, when they both got out of prison, they would set up a, a drug smuggling operation. And, uh, and that's what happened. Now, is this the scenario that is in the movie Blow with, I believe, Johnny Depp played the uh, yeah, yeah. Of uh, George Jung character? It's a movie. It's a movie. So it's uh, it's uh, large parts of it are fictional. Right. But uh, yeah, um, uh, Delgado, Diego Delgado was the character of Carlos later in the movie. Okay. I don't know why they didn't use his real name, um, but they didn't. They used his real name in this in this series that I'm associated with, it's called Paraiso Blanco, um, uh, White Paradise uh, in English. And um, but anyways, uh, yeah, so uh, it sort of it made Jung more famous than um, than later in <laughs> yeah. that uh, in that movie. And my, my thing was, um, I never thought later got his due as a, as a drug trafficker. Uh, the narco series, you remember the narco series? Right. That came out. Yeah. That, you know, he was a character in that. But they really short shrifted him. They didn't really um, uh, give him credit for his role in the um, in the uh, Medellin cartel, and they got rid of him early in that series on that sort of thing. So this is the really the first series that's going to you know uh, look at his career and uh, really give him uh, his due in terms of uh, his role in the drug trafficking history. Well, you know, they always have to take a lot of uh, literary or poetic licenses yeah. in a fictional story. Were you able to keep it pretty yeah. close to the facts? Exactly. So um, now they were pretty ambitious. I mean, very ambitious. Even did he buy that island, a place called Norman Key or? Uh, yeah. He, how did that work? Like I said, he was he was very he was very. Um, visionary and uh, he saw the way drug trafficking drugs were being distributed on a very piecemeal basis uh you know they were they were they hired couriers or mules uh individuals that were that uh smuggled the the, um, the uh, dope into the united states on their bodies uh or in their suitcases or whatever and uh he saw the potential for mass distribution of, of cocaine uh, uh if he could use planes Mm -hmm. And uh, he uh, discovered this island, Norman's Cay, which was about 210 miles off the coast of uh, 
of uh, the United States. It was strategically located from Colombia, and he came up with the idea of using planes to to move the dope into the United States. And at that time, you know, there was no ISIS, there was no Al Qaeda or anything like that. So the uh, the uh, safeguards were pretty lax in those days. And so what he did was he devised this system uh, where where uh, these planes would fly from Colombia, uh, stop in Norman's Cay, refuel and continue their journey to the United States and fly into Georgia and and um, and Florida and South Carolina and fly on, on these uh, uh, remote uh, uh, airways. And uh, then they would unload the drugs onto trucks and then move them around the country. And it was very effective. And uh, soon uh, Carlos um, uh, cornered the uh, the market. Like they said at one time, four of every five kilos of cocaine that were shipped into the United States uh, came through uh, Carlos later. Wow. Now, how was he making his money? It was uh, how, how, how was the breakdown, the uh, uh, table of organization, if you will, with uh, Pablo Escobar and Carlos later and the Ochoa brothers? How did that work? Did he kind of like was he an in- independent contractor was setting up transportation? And well, well, he worked out a relationship. He worked out a relationship with the others when they said the Midian cartel, you know, c- cartel is sort of a, a misnomer. It was actually a, a loosely associated group that worked with each other, you know, for the benefit of everybody. Yeah. And they would they would uh, share uh, loads of cocaine. They they would put their their cocaine uh, on these loads, and then they would be shipped to the United States uh, via um, Carlos's uh, distribution method. And then uh, when they were sold in the United States, uh, they would get their money back, you know, from uh, from from uh, from sales on that. And it worked pretty well. I mean, there was really no arguments between the major leaders of the Medellin cartel, and uh, and uh, it worked uh, for for several years. Interesting. Now uh, they would commingle loads. Would uh, each uh, organization have some kind of a distinctive stamp on their kilos? So when they somebody picked well, up those kilos, they would know they were theirs, and they would know who who they needed. Yeah, right. To pay. Right. There were there were. Um, uh, d- d- uh, distinctive uh, markings on the on the dope. Um, wh- one of the, the the rumors was, and I think it's true, was that later stamped his dope with uh, with the swastika. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Interesting, you know, and that sort of thing. And yeah. and he really he really disliked the United States. He looked at he looked at cocaine as a powerful political weapon in which he wanted to destroy the United States, mm. uh, and he almost did. I mean, the cocaine uh, crisis yeah. in the late. 70s. I remember, uh, you know, I was a professor on campus, and I would hear all kinds of stories about these women that would sell their bodies for, you know, for a snort of cocaine, and uh, people, you know, going to rehab and all kinds of things. And that was largely the result of Carlos Later and his transportation organization. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I was a, a soldier in Ronnie Reagan's war on drugs during those years. And that when that crack cocaine hit the inner cities of our yeah. uh, major cities, it just devastated them. Uh, they've never really yeah. come back today. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it just, there's yeah. something about the marketing of it and the small $25 rocks and, and the, yeah. the it was so plentiful. I, I know when, when I first started in that business, you know, it was like 20,000, 25 grand for a kilo. And it was even less. I was like around 10 or 15,000 later on. And, you know, yeah. by the nineties, it just, the price kept going down because supply and demand, the supply kept going yeah, right, up. Right. 
Right. Exactly. Exactly. On that end. And uh, yeah, the, the, it started off, you know, $100,000 a kilo and then yeah. going down to 25,000, 15,000 a kilo uh, as the, as the, um, the, 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 the demand and quantity increased. So, so what was his life like? Personally, I mean, did he have a fam, wife and family and a, a big, you know, like a, a safe house, like uh, uh, a car, uh, Escobar had the big uh, instantia and, uh, up in the mountains where he could hide out? Or what was, or was he just a, like uh, always on the move? What, what what was his personal life like? And uh, There's one word to describe it, debauched. <laughs> debauched. Uh, he, he was known for, on Norman Skay, it became a one big wild party scene. Uh. <laughs> um, he would he he had these uh, bodyguards who were German girls, and they would go uh, pick up uh, people that uh, worked with later from uh, when they landed uh, mm -hmm. naked, <laughs> naked. <laughs> and he was known for his for his orgies. You know, he had all kinds of orgies. It became really a wild scene. And uh, he, you know, he had he had little self control. You know, he spent wildly. He made billions. Um, you know, he was at one time he was one of the rich, he's probably richer than Escobar at one time, really. And, um, yeah, and, um, uh, 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 he just, he just, uh, he lived a, a, a wild, exciting, uh, debauched life. And of course, there were rumors about him, there were rumors that he was bisexual, you know, that, uh, that, uh, I heard a, a story from the prosecutor that uh, put him in jail that, uh, in prison about the mid 80s. Uh, he got beat up really badly in prison because he put the make on a guy. <laughs> so it was kind of interesting, um, uh, interesting background on that sort of thing. And I don't think he ever married, uh, but he had he had a lot of girlfriends, and he had children too. Yeah. Uh, his girlfriend, his uh, Monica, uh, later uh, became really prominent uh, in defending her father later on. Uh, interesting how he would uh, he would engender that kind of loyalty uh, uh, among his children and live that lifestyle. He must have kept them pretty well separate from from his uh, daily lifestyle, his party and lifestyle. Yeah, but you know he was he was very bizarre, very very unpredictable, and he he uh, used his own product. He used a lot of cocaine, mm -hmm. and I think that made him a little bit unstable, a little bit uh, unpredictable, a little bit irrational. Uh, which uh, sort of ticked off Pablo Escobar, you know, who's more about business yeah. than than anything, and uh, he always looked at later as sort of an embarrassment, you know, to the to the cartel and uh, his unpredictable behavior. And but he kept him around because he was he was useful, you know. He he had he he was a, a transportation genius, and he knew how to move drugs to the United States. So what kind of an intelligence network did he have set up? Did you do you get into that in the uh, in the show, or did have you got into that? He must have had like like how do you DEA mean? agents on the payroll or uh, customs people. Oh well, or... yeah, he had uh, uh, of course he had uh, Colombian politicians mm -hmm. galore set up. I mean, um, they were uh, they they couldn't pass an extradition treaty. Because uh, he had the Medellin cartel, not only him, but the Medellin cartel had such a stranglehold on the on the legislature. And he couldn't operate in Norman's K unless he, he bribed a lot of the politicians, including yeah. uh, Piddling, who was the prime minister. He, he went all the way up to the prime minister. But he was able to maintain his presence there on Norman's K for like 
four years until the United States couldn't tolerate anymore. And they put pressure on the uh, Bahamian government and uh, they kicked later out about 1982. Hmm. You know, and, and I can remember those days in the, in the eighties, the United States finally figured out that all this cocaine was coming up through the Bahamas and up through Florida. Yeah. And then the, you know, you see these, uh, uh, I mean, they were like dirigibles or blimps floating out there. They just really, and really hardened the target, the, the coastline around Florida with other more radar and, and those blimp things and, and all right. that. So uh, did, was he able to get around that or did he have to start, was he able to move? No, he, he used the airplanes to get in. And uh, for a long time, he was able to get away with that because the United States, uh, the thing about um, law enforcement is that they're always behind the curve. Yeah, that's true. You know, they're always behind the curve. They're always behind the, And that's what gives the, um, the the criminals the advantage. But eventually they catch up. You know, eventually they catch up. And that's when the tide turns against uh, the criminals on that sort of thing. But, uh, but he had, uh, for a long time, uh, he was able to use this network and to use his uh, his uh, means of transportation to to move drugs uh, into the United States. And of course, later they got competition from from the Cali cartel, yeah. which was a neighboring cartel from the city of Cali, named after the city of Cali. And then later the Mexicans got in, you know, on that sort of thing. But for a time there, uh, the many cartel controlled about eighty percent of the drug trafficking coming into the United States. Wow. So. Um... I'm always curious about like this guy had transportation and how does he in the United States, he's not native. How does he set up people in the United States? How does he get connected up and, and have people to greet those, meet those loads and have a warehouse, you know, rented or two or three of them rented and, and distributed out where it's not all in one place. And which I know they don't like to keep it all in one place once they get it to where they're going. Now, no, did I mean, he take uh, personal, uh, you know, control of that or did he have somebody else? How did that work? No, uh, you know, it, the drug trafficking works like a, a big multinational, you know, a, a drug trafficking organization, you know, they got all kinds of people to operate for them and uh, they put people in place, you know, to operate the stash houses, uh, to launder the money, uh, to move the cocaine in uh, or the uh, yeah the cocaine in in Colombia, mm -hmm. uh, so that they can move it to the United States. Um, but what people don't realize is is that you have to be uh, pretty organized and pretty smart yep. to operate on the level of a of a kingpin, a drug kingpin. You know, um, uh, well, you know, I did the book on Jesus, right? Right, Jesus Ruiz uh, now. And uh, you know, he was the first billion dollar cocaine uh, kingpin in in um, in um, uh, Great Britain. And he had 20,000 estimated people working for him mm. in Colombia, moving <laughs> money, you know, moving money because they couldn't they couldn't uh, ship it to Colombia without alerting law enforcement. If it was over 500 pounds. Yeah. You know, they had to keep it under 500 pounds. And here in the United States is ten thousand dollars, you know, um, and that. Yeah, but uh, uh, you know they operated like multinationals. You know, a big drug corporation. We're dealing with billions of dollars. Uh, the only difference between multinational and uh, a drug trafficking uh, organization on the level of Medellin cartel is that uh, the Medellin cartel is illegal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, so did they have enough 
English speaking Colombians that the, you know they could they trusted and they knew a lot about that then came up to the United States and started making connections with with cocaine no, dealers. They, in no, they, big there were cities. plenty of Colombians here that were able to work. Uh, okay, that they were able to work with. Yeah, they had. There's plenty of people to work with. They, you know, they hired uh, English speaking people, but they had a lot of Spanish speaking people because of the influx of uh, migration. Mm-hmm. So I always wondered then, I never could figure out then how do these American drug organizations, how did they get connected to the Colombian drug organizations? Is there like, I mean, is there any particular way or is it just people been in the prison together like Jung and and, uh, later then go get out and then contact each other? No, it's very various ways that they connect to each other on that sort of thing. But they're all interested in the same thing, making money, right? Yeah, right. And uh, and uh, there is always a demand for cr- for drugs, right? Whether it's cocaine, heroin, uh, methamphetamine, whatever. And uh, there's out there's really no problem finding people that will work with you. You know, they're willing to be peddly, uh, pedal, uh, small um, drug pushers, uh, bodyguards, all kinds of all kinds of uh, people. You know. Money launderers, yeah, and uh, money talks. Uh, yeah, they have money the money talks. to pay these people. <laughs> so probably, I know how the United States they almost have to set up uh, in bulk, uh, you know, like uh, truckloads of getting cash back down in there. They did they did the planes you know, that, then the take big of, chunks of cash back down. That's that's the the hard part of drug. Uh, Drug trafficking, right? It's not getting the drugs into the country and selling it; it's getting the money out of the country, you know, because you know money is bulky, all that yeah, sort of exactly. stuff. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, you know, they they became more sophisticated in the way they they uh, money laundered their money. But at one time, they used planes that brought the drugs in. They used those planes to move Just the cash back to Colombia, right? Where where they, you know. Like I've been to Columbia several times, and you see all these buildings, <laughs> empty, all over the place, just empty buildings, apartment buildings, beautiful buildings. That's drug money, you know. <laughs> uh, they, uh, they, had to, they had to do something with their money, so they they built stuff, but they didn't care. Anybody lived in it. They just wanted to hide their money. Uh, just have that real estate. Real estate's a pretty good investment. I know right. we mob guys here in the Kansas City that that you know they start buying small apartment buildings or little strip yeah. malls and stuff, and then you know you got cash money coming back in the rest of your life, basically. Yeah, from yeah. those. Yeah, like tell you, sorry. Uh, I've been to Columbia several times, and um, my wife's from there and all that. I'm thinking about starting a bar there, and we we're in this bar, and it was unbelievable. It was so huge. And so impractical the way it was built. Yeah. And I was thinking, I said, why would somebody build a place like this? I said, how can they make money? <laughs> and I thought about it. And I said, you know, a good example of money laundering. Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't know, really no have doubt. to be efficient with your money when you're just trying to get rid of it, get it into something right. that will give you some kind exactly. of income back. You don't have to be totally efficient right. with right. how you yeah. do it. The main objective is to hide it. Yeah. <laughs> Turn it into something that gives you a legal stream yeah. back. That's uh, that yeah. is the main exe- objective. Yeah. So the only problem is uh, when you get caught, all that disappears. The government <laughs> gets all that. You know? A little, little story about that. We had a pretty good sized cocaine dealer here in Kansas City, and he was big into this. And he would 
you know, buy up small kind of junky houses. And then he had a lot of independent contractors that he would pay, you know, pay cash for the houses, pay cash to the contractors, yeah. fix them up and then rent them out or maybe sell them. So he got ambitious and he, he had them all these different little contractors he'd made contacts with, build a small, like a five, four or five story office building. <laughs> and when he went down, then the government, uh, our financial investigations people went into that building. They're going to seize that building. And, and they, they did get it titled back over to the government. And, but when they got into it, it, it was so out of code and so messed up that they just had to tear it down. The end, it would have cost right. too much to fix it up. So they ended up with right. the land. <laughs> right. Right. On that then. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a lot of waste. Uh, they're making so much money. Uh, that they could afford to do that. Now, now Carlos's debauched lifestyle. I would imagine that will be uh, shown in some detail in this series. I would think. Yeah, for, I, <laughs> how, how far, so far do they go? So far, I'm I'm uh, two thirds of the way through. I'm through the first season. Mm-hmm. There's uh, uh, 15 episodes in the first season and uh, 15 episodes in the second. And uh, so far, he's been stay, staying with. Uh, with one girl that he uh, met early, and she's sort of his his right hand man, which deviates away from the book because I don't really because I don't really uh, deal with that part on there. But uh, uh, we we haven't really he hasn't really even touched Norman's K yet. Oh, okay, all episode. right. So you're early right. into. So it. I'm 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 thinking that's going to end before the first the first season ends on that. But uh, the character is. Um, is a little bit lovable, believe it or not. I mean, yeah. he's sort of a rascal type character. He's not as <laughs> as uh, nasty as uh, as Carlos could be, you know, with his debauchery and all that. So it's kind of interesting the way they did that. Oh, yeah. What about the uh, some of those shows? They've got a lot of torture scenes. In them. They're always finding somebody that they need to tie to a chair and, and do stuff to. I get a little tired. Yeah, well, of they that. do that. In, uh, <laughs> there, there was a couple of scenes in the in the movie too where they. They they tortured some some prisoners for information. Yeah, on that. Um, but uh, I I think it's I think it's going to be a good series. I think it's a good series. On that, I I got a chance to meet the character uh, or the actor that plays uh, Carlos later. Uh-huh. Um, uh huh. Uh, Sebastian Osario. Uh, he's a young kid. He's only like twenty four years old. He's mm-hmm. up and coming. Um, he uh, speaks uh, perfect English. He went to school in the states. And uh, I had a good conversation with him about the character. You know, he was asking me, like, how do, how do I see him playing and all that? And uh, very intelligent guy. And uh, I asked him, I said, is this a, a career changing role? And he said, yeah. He said mm-hmm. that it's a major role for him cool. on that sort of thing. And, and the poster that that uh, you'll post um, uh, is a picture of him. Okay. In Interesting. So I guess then you'll have a season two. Is that already in the works, or yeah. are, are they yeah, committed yeah, right, to that? Right, right okay. on that. Then, and I was in um, I was in Colombia, and I was on the set, and uh, I saw them filming um, season or uh, episode ten, um, which I just saw, which is kind of interesting, and um, uh, I got a chance to to see how how the film was being made, which is really quite interesting. Uh, yeah, it is. You know, they they do one little one little thing and cut, one little thing and cut, and then do well, it about the five times and cut. <laughs> the one scene I saw uh, later, he had five buddies, 
and they were putting uh, some mar- some uh, cocaine into the into the uh, trunk. Yeah, and uh, they shot that scene six times, <laughs> and there wasn't much dialogue in it. And finally, I turned to the director because I was sitting beside the director, and I said, uh, "You know, why are you reshooting this scene?" And he said that uh, that one of the characters was mispronouncing the word, <laughs> which I didn't pick up. You know, on that I don't know what yeah. it was, but uh, that shows you how how <laughs> much they were into detail. Boy, sounds like it'll be a good one. Uh, yeah, really interesting. I I really enjoyed Narcos. I I got hooked on Narcos. Now, now yeah, so yeah. in your what? How do you deal with law enforcement in this? Are you going to deal with law enforcement at all? Or well, they or, do have. Uh, they invented a they invented a couple of characters. Okay, that worked for the DEA, and they started off early with them uh, tra- tracking later, and uh, so yeah, so law enforcement is. Uh, is in there. I don't know if they're going to deal with the corruption or anything like that. Uh, they haven't dealt with any of the politics yet. There has been no major political figures from Colombian history in there. And uh, so it's quite interesting to see uh, where, where the series is going to go. Really? Because on that extradition thing, no extradition, that became a huge political uh, bundle of dynamite down there in Colombia. Dang, well, they brought the country l- down. L- right. Later, later, uh, um, organized a party, the National Latin Party, to to uh, fight extradition. Mm-hmm. That was a major concern of the drug traffickers because they knew that if they were shipped to the United States, you were caught and shipped to the United States, yeah. they wouldn't get a break. You know, they couldn't bribe anybody. They would spend the rest of their lives in uh, prison. And um, you know, they always said um, a jail cell in Colombia rather than a tomb in um, in uh, the United States. You know, that, that's <laughs> yeah. the way they viewed it. Yeah. Right. And uh, so he organized this party and he was interested in politics. He even he even won a couple of seats in the um, in the in parliament. Hmm. And um, it sort of fizzled out later The uh, and later became the, the first really big drug trafficker to which the United States sought extradition of. Oh, he was. I, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Huh? He, he yeah, had yeah, high that, profile. Yeah, right. When. when 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 they killed uh, Rodrigo Bonilla, who was a justice minister, that changed everything. <laughs> they went hard. The, the Colombian government was forced to go hard after uh, after the uh, the drug lords, uh, especially the Medellin cartel, and they all fled to Panama uh, and Noriega, where Noriega provided uh, safe haven for them. And then there was uh, r- they heard rumors that Noriega was planning a deal with the U.S. government uh, to. Uh, uh, for leniency on on p- potential drug trafficking charges, if he would turn in the uh, many cartel leaders, so they fled there and they went to Nicaragua. Oh, really? And uh, and uh, they ended up in uh, Nicaragua uh, before they came back to Colombia when they thought it was safe enough. On that, so if I remember right, in Blow, that's also where George Jung and they had turned him. And they had cameras in his plane, and they, I believe they picked up uh, Noriega maybe in the background on one of those. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. They, they caught him. Right. Uh, uh, George became uh, a minor character in in the drug trade because uh, later cut him out. Oh, you know, really? Later, later decided he didn't he didn't need Jung, and that made uh, George uh, very bitter. I interviewed George uh, twice. Oh, did you? Um, and that made him that made him uh, bitter uh, towards uh, towards later, hmm. and that comes out in the movie too. Blow. 
Oh yeah, I, I didn't really, I didn't remember that. Now he di- he died recently, didn't he? In in real life. Yeah, he just yeah. died a, a couple of years ago, right? He was when I met him, uh, and I, you know, he was on my 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 crime beat radio show. Uh, he had just gotten out of prison, I not out of prison, and he was on probation. And <laughs> it was kind of funny because he was on the show, and we had it was interrupted by his probation officer <laughs> who came in. <laughs> <laughs> and and gave him help or not, not reporting or something like that. And he got in some kind of trouble. So it was kind of funny on that sort of thing. But uh, he was in poor health uh, when he was on the show. And uh, it, it eventually deteriorated. And he was he was up there in age. He was in the late 70s. Yeah. And uh, and then he, he passed away. Uh, it's kind of interesting. These guys are all like these iconic historical characters. Uh, yeah. In in popular culture, at least for now, I don't know how long it'll last, but right now you just yeah. start talking about this in popular culture, and people will know who you're talking about. But mainly because of yeah, the, exactly. the movies and and your movie, you're gonna make you're gonna make uh, Carlos later a little more popular, a little more memorable in, yeah. in this series, if especially if it catches hold uh, with very many people. That exactly, people will know who he but, is. But you know, uh, yeah, if you look at the history of the United States, you look at the Look at the Western gangsters, right? Like Jesse oh, yeah. James and oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Billy the Kid. Everybody yes. knows who they are. You yeah. look at Cal Capone <laughs> yes. in the twenties and know yeah. who they are. There's no reason to expect that that uh, hundred years from now people aren't going to forget Carlos Later and um, yeah. Pablo Escobar. Yeah, that, there's no doubt about that. I, I agree. They probably will. We like our anti-heroes, and then, and then if we yeah, can exactly kind of like We're fascinated by them. Right. Yeah. And we just, we just need to like skew them a little bit where they weren't quite so bad. Don't tell me too many details about what they did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I was looking I on Jesse James. We, he, you know, his family lived here close to Kansas city in a small town called Carney, right outside the town. And the right. Pink, Pinkerton detective agency sent a guy in to work undercover. And he was last seen headed toward the James farm out of Kearney, Missouri. And he was never seen again. So uh, was that right? Yeah. A little known story there, but uh, yeah. so, you know, you got to like yeah. kind of take some of that bad stuff out and, and make them into your anti-heroes. Yeah. I, I was looking on my TV. I was looking at the, the shows and I was counting the number of crime shows there are. Yeah, they're like every four or so, ha- almost half of the shows on TV are related to crime in some way. <laughs> yeah, wasn't yeah. for cops. People and are fascinated criminals. by criminals. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> how many, how many mob podcasts? When I started, I was the only one, and now I don't know how many there are. There must be yeah, right, ten or fifteen of them. Mobsters and uh, other. Uh, no, there's no yeah. other policeman, uh, FBI agent or two, and. Uh, and a lot of young yeah. guys are starting now. I'm, I'm getting calls from these young guys that are starting their, their own mob podcast and want me to be on their show or whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. How, let's see. Exactly. Uh, 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 let me think if I have any other questions. I guess in the end, I mean, we're you're not to the end in this show, but kind of to put a, put a cap on Carlos' letter, he ends up in Marion. Yeah, the, the real story. Yeah, the real story of uh, of Carlos, uh, uh, he uh, his life deteriorated. You know, uh, he got really sick, and he was saved by by Escobar when he came back after after uh, fleeing to uh, to Nicaragua and all that. He came back to to uh, to Colombia. He got really sick, 
almost died. And Escobar sort of saved him, nursed him back to life. And uh, he made him a bodyguard. You know, he went from a drug lord to a bodyguard mm. on that sort of thing. But he was still unpredictable, you know, leading a debauched existence and all that. And it was sort of an embarrassment to Escobar. And, and the story is tr- uh, uh, circulates, and I think it's true, is that Escobar really set up later uh, for capture. Mm. You know, he put him on a farm and then told the authorities where he was. Uh. And they caught him at an orgy pretty well, <laughs> where he was partying. <laughs> What else? <laughs> with a bunch of uh, bunch of pals, and they went. They they captured him. They whisked him out within the six or seven hours. He was out of the country, on his way to the United States, and uh, he ended up in Florida. And um, uh, he uh, uh, was tried in Jacksonville in 1987. This is 1987, and um, uh, everybody was worried. You know, they had armed guards outside. They thought the the cartels are going to try to free him, yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff, you know, which was uh, nonsense. You know, they weren't going to do anything like that. But it, at that time, it was the biggest tri- trial of a, a foreign uh, a gangster oh, in American yeah. history. And yeah, and he got he got life plus 135 years in jail. You know, it was, it was a pretty foregone conclusion. He was convicted. And then in 1991, uh, you know, after this was after Noriega. The United States sent um, uh, troops into into Panama yeah. and literally kidnapped Noriega <laughs> and brought him back to trial and later uh, agreed to be a, uh, to be testified against him. And uh, he thought he was going to get a 30 year sentence, which would have made him eligible for, for parole. But he got a 55 year sentence, which mm-hmm. meant that he was going to stay in prison indefinitely. And uh, he fought this uh, about 2005. He got his lawyer. Uh, to challenge uh, his sentence, you know, saying that it was unfair, uh, that he should he should have the uh, uh, reduced sentence because of what he did in uh, testifying against Noriega, and uh, and uh, um, finally, uh, rumors start circulating about 2015 that that he was getting out of prison, and I didn't really believe it. I thought he was going to be in there for uh, probably die in there, but uh, all of a sudden in 2020, June June 15th. Uh, he was shipped out uh, from um, from the United States. He had two American uh, agents with him, and uh, he, uh, Germany agreed to take him okay. uh, because he had German citizenship. Uh, and uh, that's where he is now. A charity, evidently, is supposed to be uh, supporting his uh, health. Uh, he was he was in very poor condition, very sick. That that was the rumor. And uh, there's a charity that's supposed to be taking uh, taking care of him. Um, and, um, and that's where he is. I tried to get, uh, I have done a screenplay on, uh, Carlos Blader and I tried to get him involved with it. And, um, uh, we contacted, uh, Later's lawyer in, mm-hmm. uh, Miami and we sent him a bunch of stuff, but we never heard back, uh, from, uh, from Carlos on that sort of thing. And the rumor is that he's, he's coming out with a documentary latter part of this year on uh, that. Interesting. Well, uh, he's a, he's one interesting guy. Uh, and a little aside, I was doing a story on a guy who had been in Merriam Penitentiary, I guess at the same time Carlos was up there. And yeah. they, his name was Dominic Tadeo. Uh, he's from Rochester, New York. And he had, he was on the lamb and he, 
they came up with some plans he had made and even like some guns, some different, some money and some things in a storage facility when he was finally captured and put back in. And he had this plan to break Carlos later out of the penitentiary and then try to ransom him back to Colombian <laughs> cocaine cartel people. <laughs> Did you ever heard that? that right? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, uh, later disappeared for a while in prison, and uh, he was put in uh, in Witzik. Oh, uh, really? Prison? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, he he uh, was really upset with the fact that they never gave him uh, a reduced sentence, right? And he wrote a letter to the judge, and it was viewed as threatening. Hmm. And so they put, took him out and put him in isolation and all that sort of stuff. And then um, he was out in Arizona in prison there. And then one day they just picked him up and shipped him out and so he disappeared uh, and nobody knew where he was and so all these rumors started that he was working for the cia uh that he was out back in the business and all that sort of stuff i even talked with a guy about it that uh that he, he had written he had written several articles about later you know and all that and uh and uh i, I told him that. i said none of that's true i said that's all garbage on that sort of stuff but he wouldn't believe me and um he has since died but um uh, but uh then uh uh, later showed up with that um, uh, lawyer at, at challenging the prison sentence gave, yeah. given him in 2005. And so that put the, those rumors to uh, to uh, uh, circulation. But my argument was, what the hell would later know about the drug trafficking today? Really? I mean, he, you know, he was out of the business in 88. Yeah. You know, and he would know nothing about what, what yeah. was going on today. So it was absurd to even think that, that he would um, be involved with something like that. Yeah, today it appears to me that Colombians they they must still grow it the beans and all that and make it down there. But it seems like the Mexican cartels have are the dominant force. Yeah, this is what happened smuggling. after the after the Cali cartel was taken down in '95. The Colombians uh, drug traffickers smartened up, and rather than become the distributors to uh, the United States, they just sort of. Um, uh, got the got the uh, uh, cocaine and handed it off to the Mexicans <laughs> and Shorty, you know, and uh, all these drug, drug traffickers that became big in Mexico and that sort of thing. But they're still active in the drug trade, and a lot mm. of that that cocaine is coming from from coca grown in in Colombia in the Andean region. Yeah, oh, interesting. Hey, Ron, you you like cut out during that. When you started into that, could you just say that over again, and and I'll take that out about the time uh, you started talking about how uh, the Colombians got out of the transportation and and uh, but kept growing. Could yeah, you say the, that over um, again? Right. Yeah. Uh, what happened was after the Cali cartel was taken down, uh, the Colombian drug uh, drug lords got um, got smart and they decided. They weren't going to be the, the main distributors, high profile distributors to the United States. So they worked with the Mexicans and the Mexicans became the main people handling the drugs, uh, which was very smart law enforcement wise, because it just moved the drug trade closer to the border, you know, and made yeah. the Mexicans much more on that. And uh, but they're still they're still active in the drug trade. I mean, they're still one of the major um, Colombia is still one of the major producers of uh, coca from which cocaine is made. And uh, it's thriving. Uh, the, the drug trade in, in Colombia, but it's not as it's not as violent as it was. You know, um, mm -hmm. it, there isn't the violence that's associated with that 
like the, uh, the 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 late 1980s when Escobar was was uh, on the run from law enforcement and uh, launched this narco terrorism campaign, which mm. uh, I saw. <laughs> I, I I was in my, my house one day when I heard a bomb go off, mm. which was like uh, maybe about a mile away. That that's how big the bomb was, mm. and. Um, and, uh, you know, when I was going to Colombia, I couldn't go 10 miles outside of Bogota because of the guerrillas. All that's changed now. And Medellin is even one of the top um, destinations for American retirees, believe okay. it or not. This is, yeah, it's, uh, in fact, it's number one, ARP mm. had it, had Medellin number one, uh, oh, you know, which is, which is astonishing. It is. You know, given that at one time, you know, uh, uh, Escobar was paying money to uh sicarios to kill police officers mm-hmm. you know and they were being killed by the droves well that is astonishing that it's changed yeah. that much and and i know the 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 weather's great you know it's it's closer to the yeah, equator, yeah, so it's warm big, uh, and, but it's high right. in the mountains and and so the yeah, weather's yeah. like land of eternal spring uh tierra de primavera yeah exactly on that sort of thing one interesting note uh uh, the series starts off with uh, later in prison, old man, and the guy looks remarkably like uh, Sebastian uh, Sario, who plays the uh, the young leader. And uh, he's in the prison, and they're telling him he's getting out, and he has uh, uh, a book on his lap, and it's my book. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. <laughs> it's the book upon which uh, which is kind of uh, funny. And then in the third scene, he's on the plane going to Germany. And you look on his lap, and there's my book again. <laughs> so they, they gave me pretty good publicity on that. They did. They did. <laughs> yeah. All right. Ron Chepsek uh, and the story of Carlos Leder. Uh, Ron, go back over the, the name of that and where people find it. And and then tell us a little bit about a couple of your other, other books. I'll put links up to Ron's uh uh, Amazon author page because it's been a pretty prolific author. And then I forgot last time we talked, I forgot about your radio show. That you were the first show that I was ever on after I did that movie Gangland Wire. Uh, yeah, right. right. So, I remember that. So talk yeah, a little we, bit about yeah. yourself there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've come out with, uh, I've done 42 books and um, the last two books I've done are, are the real Mr. Big, uh, how Colombian um, refugee became a billion dollar, uh, Drug uh, drug lord United Kingdom, and then uh, I did Bad Henry, murderous rampage of uh, the Taco Bell Strangler about a serial killer that killed ten women from 1992-1994 in uh, Charlotte, and I've done some other books, uh, mainly on drug trafficking. I did a book on Frank Matthews called Black Caesar, which has been optioned uh, for a movie, and uh, Sergeant Smack, which is my favorite book because I had a really close relationship with Sergeant Smack, who was uh, Ike Atkinson. On that sort of thing, and uh, I'm working on a book now about uh, a Dallas um, con man in in the gas and oil industry, yeah. and, I'm, and uh, uh, I'm working on that right now. So I'm, I'm busy. <laughs> Plus, I'm a screenwriter, so I'm, I'm working on scripts all the time. So, what about your Crime Beat Radio? How do people find that? Uh, Crime Beat Radio is is interesting. Um, I um, uh, you can find it at theartistfirst.com website. And um, uh, look it up, and uh, you'll see the, the link uh, on Thursday Thursday evenings um, uh, at eight o'clock uh, Eastern Standard Time. The show uh, is on, and I've been on the air since two thousand and eleven. 
and I've had over 640 shows, something like that, on that. And uh, I'm like you. I was there at the beginning. You were. And now there are like hundreds of prime shows. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, predated just, me even by about two years. <laughs> yeah, uh, that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, and I enjoy I enjoy doing it. And um, and I'll be on the show tomorrow talking about this. You're the first guy I'm talking about this. Oh, okay. Oh, this, cool. Uh, topic, the TV series. And I'll be on tomorrow to talk about my own show. So. All right. Great. Well, Ron, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and have you on the show. Uh, don't forget, guys, I like to ride motorcycles, so watch out for motorcycles when you're out there on the street. And if you have a problem with PTSD and you have been in the military, go to the VA website and get that hotline number. If you have a problem with drugs or alcohol, go see our friend Angelo Ruggiano at angeloruggiano.com or on his YouTube channel. He, uh, he is a former Gambino member, and he also now is... Uh, in recovery himself, and he is a drug and alcohol counselor down in Florida. So uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Ron. And you guys, don't forget to to like and subscribe and share this with your friends. Thanks a lot, Ron. Thank you. Thank you, Gary.